Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Zeitcast. My name is Jonathan Martin, and I can honestly say from any Zeitcast ever, this is the one I've most looked forward to. I have been trying to coax my wife, Nicole, onto the podcast slash any of these other kind of spaces I'm in for years, actual years. And what she said to me a long time ago, which I always thought was weird and would be self-referential. Well, she said, I would do it if I could interview you. I feel like this is self-defeating. She's a brilliant person, and she's so brilliant at this. I want the world to know her, and I want my world to know her. However, because I just dropped a surprise slash sort of emergency advent book, I did eventually concede that I was open to this kind of format just as a Trojan horse to get Nicole to be able to do more. I know she does not want the kind of introduction that I give for others, uh, anything long or innate. So I'll just say I love her more than anyone in this world ever. She's my favorite person. She's utterly extraordinary. Nicole, thank you for being on the podcast. Well, I asked Jonathan before if it was okay to refer to myself still as a fangirl, but mm. um, that's how I started, and that's what I still am. So oh. um, this is more fun for me than it is for you, trust me. Even it's, though I feel thoroughly worked and manipulated. And oh, you're being slightly worked. slightly coerced into I, this podcast world. <laughs> are you being worked if, if you know, if that's kind of on the table from the beginning? Because no. I feel like I've been very honest about my intentions here all that's along. True. It's odd to have listened to every podcast you've ever done, though. Is that true? Son of a Preacher Man to mm. John O'Cast to all of them and then to be on it as mm. your wife. Mm. So that's a head trip. Mm. How do you prepare yourself for that? It's l- like if you saw your favorite band when they were in a tiny club except i'm still in a tiny club so the early versions of the podcast involved three or four people <laughs> listening like including my mom maybe but still i i hate myself for saying these things because you know i'm such like a feminist like you don't mm-hmm. you know talk up your man and here i am yeah well still referring to myself as a fangirl but it's true i do i do i am always surprised that you know me as intimately as you do for as long as you have, and that you still say these things publicly or privately at all is shocking to I'm me. I'm more of a fan shocking. now than I was mm. before we met, so that is saying something about that, you. Well, that's, that's very <laughs> kind. That's incredibly generous. And we could actually do this for like three hours. We could. We could. So. And I actually we do. I want to do that podcast. I want to do that podcast because I feel like my – I don't think I have a shtick, but I feel like what's core to who I am and what I am is – you know, hopefully some sort of authenticity. And when love is this central to your life and existence and all the things that we share the way that we do, it's weirder for me not to talk about it. So I, I feel like that podcast is still to come. However, part of my concession for this format is that while well, I'm setting it up, that I would kick it over to you and let you let you steer this however you want to take it. Pressure. So That's pressure. Is it? That, the pressure's on me, isn't it? Because I feel like okay. the pressure is always on the one, you know, conducting the interview. Yeah, okay. So, but I did, I, I thought that was appropriate for this format. Mm. A little less pressure for me. All I know, I'm just asking questions. Mm. Because this book, I did, yeah, if you can see this. Um, first of all. Can I ask this question real quick of you first and then yeah. you go? Yeah. Are you surprised that this book exists and is in your hands? <laughs> I've never been a part of anything this insane. 
<laughs> Actually, I, that could be said of everything to do with Jonathan Martin's life. Well. <laughs> I mean, seriously, mm. that's really true. Okay. But, Fair I enough. mean, he started playing around with this content last Christmas. Uh, yeah, a little over, over a year ago, but going even, in the last advent. I don't yeah, know how it happened. You wrote a couple chapters that were just fire and sent them, like, just some random night, because this is what he does. He, he stays up mm. all night on a tangent, like... Mm. And then he sends me things, and it's just mind-blowing. And I'm like, okay, we have to do something with this. But that was like we were already well into the season, and so we didn't think we'd get out in time. So this year, it became something very different. It Mm -hmm. became something more than it was originally. Um, But I would say, what do you think the total time that you wrote this in? I mean, he writes very quickly when he's on fire. Well, I did last year, last advent of last year, I wrote a small short version of this manuscript. That's true. But yeah. when I revisited it, it felt like it was becoming something entirely it meant something entirely different that it became something entirely different. Okay, hang on, cuz this is my Okay, so this I'm, is my first question. Uh, Let so me I'm, ask, ask I'm messing the up question. the flow of the questions. Yes. Okay. I just love the fact that this is kind of a surprise and I already feel like I need to make a pause. I have a wonderful literary agent, Chris Ferby, who didn't know about like that's true. No one knows. I did not back away from. It's not that I don't care to necessarily publish through traditional publishers again or something like that. It really just felt like there was such a fire in me about this. Something had happened. But yes. Yeah. So, yeah, go so I, I will set up the first question that way. Kay. I mean, I've been now a part of your last book, The Road Away from God, which, if you haven't read, hmm. is the best book I've ever read in my life. I say that about every one of his books, and then he comes out with something that's even more on fire. But um, so I was, she's not got credibility with anyone. I, that's like, true. But um, I, 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 I appreciate. I appreciate this. <laughs> I, endorse, I endorse this. Um, so I was part of that process and saw mm. just how long. I mean, it's a year process. But mm. you know, between the time he's written the manuscript and the time it makes way, its way into the world, and this was something totally different. So much mm. of what he was writing. I mean, two weeks ago or a week ago, really. Um, things that were happening in real time, and he's writing them, and it's like, we've got to get this out now, so how do we do it? So my question is, the insanity of putting out a book on Advent, like the second week into Advent. In, in yeah, after like, Advent sort of Not, started. you know, like last year, thinking about it strategically, but literally, you're writing chapters hmm. a week and a half ago, and deciding to put this out into the world. Why did this feel like something you were compelled to put out? now without all of the fanfare without the publisher and and all the support system because you know we need support with anything we do we need and not having it because if you guys even knew what it was like behind the scenes if you knew how much support we need <laughs> to get this out into the world if you d- um it would be comical <laughs> we live in complete chaos which yeah. is a whole other thing that so we're why, in two why, places and why um, did we do why why did you choose to do this right now It it wouldn't feel right if I said anything other than, on some level, I don't know. Um, I don't quite. I feel like in 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 writing this, it felt like something was happening that I don't entirely understand. Um, I think the only thing I was able to come around to, and Doctor Chris Green. Yes. I don't typically re- I don't refer to him it, it, by titles all the time because he's. One of my dearest friends, but Chris was, um, there was a significant thing with Chris when he read this of like, wow, this book is really about Margaret Gaines, and uh, I'm happy if I'm just sort of a, a, a talking horse for Sister Gaines. Anybody who knows me, I've been talking about her 
for so many years now. She uh, passed in 2017 into that communion of the saints that I take so seriously, and but in some ways almost feels more present to me now than she did then. And for anybody who doesn't know, Sister Margaret is a Pentecostal woman who felt this call when she was 19 years old in Pell City, Alabama, went in the mission field without any support from our denominational mission board because that's what they're supposed to do, end up starting a church and a school in Abood Village in the occupied West Bank. Um, extraordinary work and person and her relationship with Muslims there. Every, I, there's so much I can say about her. I, I knew a saint. I knew a saint. And she's marked my life in every way. But I think specifically what's happening in the world now, um, the time of recording, I know it's been well over 16,000, I think 17,000 now at least, Palestinians that are dead, and I can't, um, I, I can't fathom how she would respond to that. And yet, I feel like maybe in some way, I'm sensing something of that. And that, you know, one a line that Chris used. He talked about how, like, um, if you're familiar with Mark's gospel, there's sort of this case that Mark's kind of Peter's gospel. That's really the lens that Mark is telling P- Peter's story. And he said, like, I really feel like this is. This is Margaret's book. You're just testifying, and that's that's what it feels like to me. And so I, I know that's in the mix. I know that the fury I felt writing this feels like her fury. I also feel like something something happening here that there's some sort of urgency on it, like such a sense of heat. I don't. I really feel like I can't comprehend it. Like I don't know what it's all about. But it felt like it was singeing my fingers, and that like I couldn't live if I didn't get this content out in some form. And that doesn't make it super important. I don't. I don't mean that to be self-referential. But it did feel like, in some ways, not having a choice. It's crazy the way these things kind of collided because you started writing this last Advent. Yeah. And. It wasn't a full manuscript, and we didn't have time to get it out. And then, of course, no one could have anticipated what would be happening in the world the next Advent. Yeah. And it's it's funny the way that he and I process things, because I'm constantly watching the footage of the genocide and mm. a basket case. And I'm like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? I can't function. I can't breathe. I can't sleep. I can't anything. And what do we do? And we're trying to figure out what to do. And what can anyone do that, that makes a difference? Mm. And And he's like... You know, working on the the Advent manuscript, and how does that tie in with everything? Mm. And then he's writing about Sister Margaret, and it's so relevant to what's happening. And it's like he's channeling all of that grief into this work before he even realized he was doing it. And it was so cathartic to me to read that and to feel like, I mean, he opens the book up saying, you know, I I knew a saint, which is a pretty strong thing to say. Mm. Like, I knew a saint, not a good person, yeah. not someone who impacted my life, but a saint. And it was like her witness, her fury came out without him even realizing that's what was happening yeah. in this particular moment in time. And that's why it was so like, we've got to get this out now, like self-publish, get it out. It doesn't matter how clumsy. Um, and it's, I'm sure it's clumsy. In all kinds the of the book I'm holding right now, which was <laughs> the first one I ordered that appeared on Amazon has like so I'm the editor by the way like 
air quotes, um, has typos. I was like humiliated. Like wh- people are buying this book that has like clear typos. The I photo mean, with Sister Margaret it is like a negative in in this let version. Me, yeah, l- let me show you this. Oh, we're gonna amazing. Show. I'm going to show it <laughs> because there's a lot of you who are going to have bought this book. Where is the photo? Welcome to Amateur Hour, everybody. Uh, yeah, and this is what you're going to see. This is the amazing photo <laughs> of Jonathan and Sister Gaines. <laughs> So, but you don't know what you're getting until you get it. And so all these people are ordering it. And, and, and there was no get, time. We were out of no time. time. Eva Randa, our friend, did do an amazing cover. So she legitimized she us did. in some the way. The cover but. is beautiful and mm-hmm. amazing, but it was such a learning curve. And all of it just felt like pure insanity. But um, what you did was extraordinary. And I feel like in a world where so many things seem overly strategic, you yeah. know, or pre-planned and, and almost too well thought through. And, and they're typically better executed than what we <laughs> anything we would do. Well, we all know that nothing in my life has ever been strategic or well planned. That is true. I'm not smiling when I say no, that. No, I know. Because that's I, those are sheer true. facts. Yes. There's never been a strategic decision in my life to an, a, an actual fault. This is the thing that infuriates me about you, <laughs> but also <laughs> one of the reasons I love you <laughs> so much because it is the – the purest thing. Mm. And I love that. I love that this became something that we didn't even know it was until, mm. you know, and, until I was doing the first edit and I, and I was like, this is, this had to happen right here, right now. I'm glad my utter lack of competence and planning is endearing to you in some way. It is. Especially now because, <laughs> and I will just say this, and we will talk about this much more in mm. future podcasts because we have plans. But ADHD, I am oh, learning. Yeah. I am learning all the things about ADHD right now. And, um, yeah. Yeah, That's kind of all the ADHD tendencies. I'm, I think it's, it's fair to say I'm sort of off the charts on basically every... Off the charts, yeah. yes. And I- anyone who's dealing with ADHD themselves or someone they love, mm. the more you learn, the more you know, the more compassion and grace mm. you have for it. And this is why so. friends, and many of you will know what I mean, and I'm so embarrassed about it. I'm so present to you when I'm with you, and then I fall off the face of the earth because I'm overwhelmed by everything and don't yep. can't talk to anyone for eight months. No, and, I, um, I used to say, like, you didn't respond to this person you love for a couple of days, and mm-hmm. now you feel like your friendship is over forever, and you yeah. can never respond to them again. Because I'm in the shame spot. And this is why everyone yeah. thinks you've ghosted them, but yeah. it's because this is... ADHD. But in fairness, I've ghosted the world because I just don't like I I get (laughs) when I'm in my show. That's an aside. We'll talk about that more later. Back to the book. Okay. Um, The the Sister Margaret, if I can say this, it's you can't talk about Advent and not talk about Mary. I think Advent is, and for uh, uh, a lot of the Christians, and not everybody who's listening to this shares the same faces, but people are. I don't think too many of our folks would be scandalized with this, but. Mary occupies at least as significant a space in our Christian New Testament as Abraham does in the First Testament. So for those of us who come from traditions where we don't reflect on Mary, that's unfortunate. But Advent is, as much as it's about Jesus, this is so much Mary's story. This is Mary's story. This is Mary's waiting. This is Mary's journey. If you have any concept whatsoever of hoping or anticipating Christ to be born in the moment, the incarnation of Christ, the mystery that has happened, is happening, will continue to happen, and will happen in the future. It's so much Mary's story, and I think the fact that Margaret is a person who lived where Mary lived and loved the places that Margaret loved was the convergence for me, that this feels like the Advent story is very much Mary's story, and Mary's story is very much 
Margaret's story. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that leads right to my next question, which there's a, a quote that you repeat over and over in different ways mm. through the book. Um, it's kind of the theme that runs throughout. But on page 65, you said in a particular way, though, and read. It's chapter 14, oh, let us, oh, come, let us wait for him. You say, yes, God has come, but God is still coming, and God will yet come. If you're not paying attention, you just might miss it. Mm. And I feel like, especially from the tradition I come from, which is very Pentecostal, um, word of faith, or Ramgrad, if that explains anything, um, I should have said that in your introduction. You should. I feel like every introduction should be like, she graduated from Rama, so whatever she says is great. Is, is great. great. <laughs> we deconstruct hard, I'm just saying. Mm. <laughs> um, but it's very much like, where is God? Why isn't he intervening? Who's doing something wrong? Who's not praying the right prayers? Um, and so, uh, just right now, because so much of this is said in what's happening in the world, I feel like it's consuming all of us right mm. now. It's and we go back to that thing of like, where is God in, as people have said, the rubble? Where is God in this conflict? Like, why? how could there be a God who allows atrocities like this? I'm watching it every day on my phone. I am one of those people who, I don't even know why it's probably not good for my mental health, but I'm like, these stories, people are putting their lives at risk to show us these Im images and this footage, and I'm watching all of it. But... There's something that's so transformative about this concept that God is always working mm. in ways that are right in front of us, and we are called to participate in those ways. Mm. We're called to come awake. We're called to see them, mm. um, which we're often not. And we're called to participate in the way that God is coming. Mm. It's not just a bystander. Yeah. It's not praying for God to intervene. Yeah. But it's how we can participate, mm. how we can be co-laborers, how we can be alive to what God is doing. So instead of praying for God to show up, we pray for eyes to see how we can be witnesses, how we can mm. be, you know. So can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the the thing that continues to, I don't, there's no way you can, that to talk about this that does it either sound clumsy or almost too poetic and I really I don't mean it I said this at one point about something else but I don't I actually I don't mean this as poetry it's fine to do poetry on purpose I just I really don't intend this as poetry this is more like just for me my, my experience of the world um, maybe some people would find this like out of balance but I, I feel like even in terms of our canon of scripture I don't balance does it exist that way that idea does it exist there I feel like this is more the reality that prophets bear witness to, that all of these early saints bear witness to, is that two things are simultaneously happen, happening. Like on, on the one hand, whenever I look at the world, there are ways in which I don't see God at all. Like, like at all. There, there is so much chaos and pain and randomness and such arbitrariness to that pain, such arbitrariness to that suffering, that it is fully real to me, this idea that God is never God is never present, God never comes, God never shows up, and things never get better. And simultaneously, there is a way that, it, that any 
given moment, it's like that God is so present in everything that it's shattering, you know. Like, every everything's a miracle. Every life is a miracle. Every moment's a miracle. Um, it, it feels like it's, it's, it's screaming at us. And I feel like both of those things are true at the same time. And that's part of what I love about the season of Advent is there because Advent for Christians the, the lines are blurred. You know, you you we're remembering that waiting, that anticipation of the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. We're very much ostensibly theologically this way that we're waiting for God to come again and waiting for things to be made right. But we're in that kind of in between time where in a real sense for those of us who have these ideas about Jesus. We do believe that God has already come, but we're entering into that waiting for a God in, in, in a way who has not yet come. And the world is certainly not bearing witness to the beauty of this Christ in all kinds of ways. And, and, and you get full permission to kind of sit in that tension and not resolve it. You said in one line of the book, you refer to the waiting and the longing as sacrament. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was so beautiful because I feel like when you're in the grief, like in the middle of something, and I feel like waiting and longing in the state of the world as is right now, those words don't even fully convey what it is. Yeah. It's just a guttural, <laughs> yeah. God, where are you? Mm. Um, that feels so disorienting. Yeah. And, and, and there's all sorts of emotions that can come with that. You know, it feels like the, the things we try to do are, what does it matter? What does mm. it mean? What does our grief mean? Um, I, I feel like people in America, like, we're so complicit in things. And so mm. it's like, what is it? We need to feel the full weight of yeah. that grief. But to honor that as something holy, as something sacramental, is revolutionary. It's not something that we need to bypass yeah. or we need to, oh, I've got to – go do something for my mental health, and I completely believe in that. I feel like mm. these are, you know, we, we have these conversations a lot, because I, <laughs> he's so sensitive that if he, I can't if, watch if he the, watches I too not, much of it. I, I don't sleep at all now if I was watching that, that I would. He's paralyzed, yeah. whereas I'm like, everyone needs to be watching this 24-7, yeah. sure. because. <laughs> um, but I just feel like reframing it that way, that, that the longing, the waiting, uh, is is something that is that is holy and it, it can be intentional, which is also a theme through the book. That like that time can be something intentional, that coming awake, that seeing the mm. world as it really is. It makes me really sad that people think that God wants all these things that they don't have. I, you know, I, I don't have the time. God wants this time that I don't have. I don't have resources. God wants these resources I don't have. It's something beyond what they have. Um, that doesn't ring true for me. I think anything that God is interested in is is what's already in our pockets, what's already kind of in our hands, and um, that's part of the power of this Advent idea to me. That I, I talk, I guess I talked about earlier in the book is this: when is there a moment in your life when you're not waiting, when you're not waiting at the DMV or waiting for um, waiting to graduate or to get married or retire, or waiting for the divorce to be finalized, waiting for. Um, the check in the mail, waiting for whatever. And, and it's way like, well, you can't make all these things sacred, can you? Oh. I, I that's what I love about it, is that I think Advent gives us permission for the waiting that we're already doing. 
and to experience that as a holy thing, to experience that as a thing that doesn't have to be bypassed or buried or let's just be positive or something, that, yeah, things aren't right. And whether or not some of us really believe that anybody's going to come on some white horse to save the day, on some level, aren't we all hoping that that still might be true? And Advent gives us permission to lean all the way into that. Mm. Yeah. So I know for me, um, my tendency is, and I don't know if this is a, we've recently discovered, I thought I was a five forever, but well, I'm actually an eight. She's and not so a five. Now I've been she's down the rabbit five. hole of like eightness. I don't know if this is an eight thing. Oh, I, I, I. <laughs> I have been down a rabbit hole of eightness, let me tell you. <laughs> For years. Uh, and you didn't know what to call it. But mm-hmm. this is this is the maybe the beauty and the curse of the Enneagram mm-hmm. is once you kinda locate yourself, you're like, aha. Uh-huh. If you don't know what we're talking about, don't even research this don't, witchcraft. Don't do it. Yeah, don't uh-huh. waste time <laughs> with it. But I don't know if this is just me or if this is just human nature or what, but uh-huh. I feel like sometimes the waiting and the longing can turn into cynicism and despair. Yeah. And for me, and I think for most people, when it becomes that, that we're no good to anyone. Mm. Not, not the world, not our own families, not our partners, not ourselves. We're not being good, you know. It, it just leads us to a really bad place, dark mm. place. And it leads to paralysis for me. So how do we step into this waiting and longing without succumbing to cynicism and despair? Like how, like practically, how do we do that? Because I've not figured it out. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how. Because um, I don't know that I know how. I think that this is one of the things, you know, it's kind of like if you, if you ask somebody what they believe about anything, if you ask somebody like how they see the world, I mean, I can give you sociolo- sociology for it. I can talk about my social location, where I was born and what I was born into and you know, what things are likely hardwired on some level. But in a way where I think the mystery is greater than the sum of the parts, I my sense is there is a reality to, to God in a way that God is, God contains, I, I talk a little bit in the book, and it's not like this language is entirely unique to me, but I do have a, I do have a particular view on this, this idea of God being very much like the sea. And the sea is all-encompassing. There's sort of a rage and a calmness and a tranquility and a savageness and all these things. I mean, this, it's the sea. It's vast. You know, it's incomprehensible. It's kind of, um, I so experience God that way in, in a way that makes me always mindful both that Things really are always dying, and people that believe are always dying, and tragedies are always happening that we don't understand. Yet, is it there a real way that life is always coming up out of the ashes? Is there a real way that resurrection is always happening, and that somehow out of the brokenness and the trauma and travail, something new comes out? You don't have to be a Christian to believe that. Yeah. But I think being a Christian is a way of naming that. And because I see that, I do see that. I see both like all the heartbreak and, and drink it all the way down, whatever, but also seeing the new life keep coming. It's more like it just, there is an inevitability to that to me, like an inevitability to the way that things are always going to keep on getting broken down and falling apart and, and an inevitability also to the rising. 
that I call God. I believe that that is God. That's who God is. That's what God is. Old things are passing away. All things are being made new, and it's all true at the same time. For me, that's what that's what God is. And so I and I can't I can't deny that because it's what I'm seeing all the time. Well, and it's coming from the tradition that I did that was very much like we're world changers and everything we do is going to change the world. And you have these, you know, imaginations mm-hmm. that you're going to do something that's actually going to, I, I don't know, I mean, we had all sorts of, like, delusions that mm-hmm. we were, you know, like, yeah. we, we could affect things happening in the Middle East, you know, yeah. if we were just praying hard enough or whatever. But you tell the story that I do want to talk about. I was going to read it, but I would, I would rather you tell the story. Um, of something that happened that I feel like reframes so much of this for me and makes it very practical because mm. we can't change these big things that are happening, even when we're wondering like where God is. But sometimes that cynicism and despair can blind us to the ways God is showing up right in front of our faces. Yeah. And you talk about that a lot in the book, that mm. God is happening right, right here, right now in this mm. moment, um, even in small ways. And we are, st- and, and sometimes I feel like we think it's insignificant, so it doesn't matter mm. in the grand scheme of things. Um, but it's like a river, you know, like you you jump into this flow, yeah. and and God is always moving. And so you have this story of something that happened recently here at Depa, mm. in the middle of this conflict and all the tensions that you walk with the Muslim and Jewish student communities. Mm. And I'm trying. I was trying to find where you what you said about it, but it was very much like, I, I, I don't know why I have ringside seats to this sort of holiness, but, but you witnessed something holy in the midst of this chaos where you've really been pretty unsure how to navigate True. as the director for Center for Spiritual Life that holds all these faith communities. Mm. Um, and, and there's all sorts of pain and tensions and emotions, and you are trying to navigate that with these students. Yeah. Um, and so tell us about, just tell us about that story. Well, I mean, I, I think the context I would say first would just be at DePaul University, where I serve as the director of the Center for Spiritual Life. You know, we, I'm so mindful of the fact that our Jewish and Muslim communities are both marginalized communities in rural Indiana. They just are. You're an hour away from a synagogue, a temple, mosque, so you don't have that kind of support structure. And everything that's happening in that part of the world right now, however people feel about it, are projected onto all kinds of people, including our students. And I think anybody who's paying attention knows that universities right now are the most volatile place in America, which is why all our leading universities are in the, are in the news right now, how they're handling this, mishandling this, because there's so much tension and I'm just very mindful, not in a silly way. I feel like people can talk about white things, white privilege. They can be like over the top. I'm not going around some self, in some state of self-loathing. It's just a fact that I can, within reason, I can say anything I want about any of this without repercussions. Mm-hmm. It's not my life in that way. Yeah. We're all connected. But not. it's not coming back on me like that. And I sort of... You know, I have such a deep love for our communities, and it's, you know, we're doing this right now during Hanukkah, and, you know, for the last eight nights, in terms of just being with a handful of our Jewish students, lighting the candles, and... Yeah, that's where we we just came from, the... Yeah, being with Abby there, shout out, 
Yes. If you ever see this, we uh, or when I think about um, it was the day before, it was October sixth, I believe, that I was in a Shabbat service here, and Rabbi Pfeffer, this was so precious to me. Let me help him roll and unroll the scrolls that, of the Torah. You don't get to. Someone like me doesn't get to do that. It's extraordinary. There were seven or eight of us, and we're like dancing around, just just the right size to be awkward, which was perfect. Like dancing around with the Torah. I've never seen like, you dance, so I no, I don't dance. I don't I, dance. People I wish get hurt. I had witnessed this. You know, I love this community that I'm like. It's like no, this is what we're yes, doing yeah. all the way. So, <laughs> but you know, like I, we've seen Muslim students um, connected to that part of the world who've been attacked and harmed and people doing all sorts of ridiculous things to punish them for speaking their grief or their, anyway, so much of that is like, is, is, is bound up. So how, how does anybody know how to walk that? And I just, when I talk about the ringside seat to this kind of holiness, I couldn't have anticipated. We, um, cause we have it. No, no one, know, I don't think anybody knows what to do. I don't think anybody knows what to say. All language is so fraught. And everybody's scared to death to say the wrong thing. And everyone's trying to put out statements. Yeah, and trying to put out statements. Which are difficult yeah, that's to propose. Right. <laughs> and uh, we have a small campus. And our, I sat down with, I didn't convene this meeting. They 1,000% did. But I was in the room with I want to say, too, that you were, this, this uh, rolling and unrolling the scrolls, this happened October 6th. Yeah, that's right. And then there's October 7th. Yeah. So this is how... Yeah. Quickly, these things are happening. The very next day. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's so unique contextually here and that just we sort of, I don't know, we just so wanted to, because you don't want to force people into anything. I really, nobody hates performative nonsense more than yeah. I do. I hate things that are performative. In general, in life, I hate things that are performative. But, in you know, we, as we're a couple weeks into this and we're trying to figure out what kind of event do we want to hold? What words do we use? What language do you use? Whose liturgy? Who would say that prayer? Who would be, and everything, you know, our, there was this, this amazing thing that happened because we, Rabbi Pfeffer, who I write about in the book, Bruce Pfeffer, my good friend, and my other dear friend and mom, Ahmed Alamin, who is like such a, I mean, he is my And brother. these are like three besties, the, the yeah. Pentecostal preacher with the rabbi yeah. and the imam, and they are. Yeah. They're close, and it's it's magical what yeah. happens between the three of you. Not to interrupt you. Sorry, Thank you for just, well. I mean, we love each other, and I feel like so much is a natural extension of those relationships. And of course, it's a spirit connection. Yes, and Maureen Knudsen Langdock, our dean of spiritual life. Yes. It's such a we all there. There's such a real community of like what's yeah. But all to say, it's like so. The next time they're here after this, because a couple weeks later, and we. Uh, Rabbi Pfeffer and I both said in the Juma prayer service, Muslim prayer, right? And like, there was just something so profound about seeing Rabbi Pfeffer cross leg on the floor a couple feet in front of me and like just being there and present and participating and listening and sitting at the feet of the Imam. Too long, yeah. And Imam Alameen, who's such a hopeful, beautiful, I tell people all the time, and like for people who aren't Christians, they don't understand like that this, how this is. Uh, Rubbing some folks the wrong way, but I, I say it a lot. I talk. I talk. I don't want. I'm not trying to derail myself. I talk. You know how much I love to talk about the sound of God. It's the whole thing. Yes. And I don't under. And I, I, so I'm just quick to say. I don't this know what it is. This is also in my questions, so you okay. can talk about this more later. Yes. But that I can be around pastors, preachers, theologians who ostensibly believe the same things that I do, and I do not hear the sound. 
I don't hear a sound that I recognize. One of the cutest things with me, with you and the imam, it's like almost like the Holy Spirit recognition, like Pentecostal Christian pastor with a Muslim imam. And uh-huh. you're like, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. I, I don't know to what extent I carry that, but I know that, well, I don't claim to be whatever. I know the sound when I hear it. And he is all that sound. It's in everything that he says and who he is. It's just, it's the it's, it's sound. And as he's giving his sermon in our Christian vernacular that today, his charge essentially to our Muslim students was check on your Jewish siblings. And if you don't know them, if you don't know their names, now's the right time to do it. And Shabbat service is happening later today. There's some reception with the rabbi. Come make sure they're okay. And it was such a – and I know, like, I'm seeing Imam Alameen. He's part of workshops right now helping Muslims in America process the trauma because for so many of this is fam- this, their own family members who are yeah. being annihilated right now. And um, But that that's what the sermon was about, was, like, to, to be – to protect and to care for their Jewish friends. And – you know, I, I happened to be standing in the little entrance of the lobby with Rabbi Pfeffer and Imam Al. I mean, when a couple of our Muslim students, uh, Mahin, comes in and comes straight to Abby and Olivia, who lead our Hillel on campus, and say, and it was very much like that. Hey, we really, we really want to make sure you're okay. Are you okay? How are you? What can we do? How can we support your community right now? And they're asking our Muslim students the same thing. And out of that, uh, they decided that rather than trying to draft a statement, the most powerful statement they could make, and you can't. Of course, I'm going to hear this as a Christian through table language because the table of Jesus and the Eucharist is, if you don't know this, this is a spoiler alert for a lot of Christians. The table is the central of your faith. A lot of you don't know that it's the center of your faith. It's the only center. There's not another center. If you have another center, it's the wrong center. (laughs) Anyway. Wow, I never hear you speak that black and white. <laughs> no, <it's> not, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so why, like. Why, why we have the table church, it, it, though, Indeed. It's, it's, the table's everything. If it's okay. not everything, that's probably the. Yeah. Something's off. Anyway, they, uh, that does sound very. Just, uh, it is. It is there, there is no other Christianity than a table centric Christianity. Yeah. Um, they, but they said that they felt like the most powerful statement they could make would be sharing a meal together, time together in community. And that's what they did, and we had that experience just uh, over a week ago, I guess, where, I mean, it was just a meal, and we had halal meat, and we had kosher food, and Rabbi and Pfeffer and Imam Alameen made a few remarks, but it wasn't a panel discussion, and while there's all kind of need right now for historical context and for everything that's happening in that part of the world, it wasn't about that. It was sharing a meal, and it was about being together, and it was so profound, and the fact that, that our students led us to that place, you know, yeah. like it's not because we brought in the experts to work stuff out. I feel like everybody here, as is everywhere, so there's a judgment that is terrified to talk about anything. Yeah. And our students, like the fact that there's like the sense to like, we need a meal mm-hmm. where like we're eyeball to eyeball with each other and we're listening to each other and we're just present that doesn't have to resolve yeah. Maybe that doesn't seem profound to anybody else. But for me it's mind blowing. And and to see like our students lead with that kind of maturity and compassion and 
empathy and listening is, uh, you know, I just, I just think it's remarkable. I think when you hear a line like, yes, God has come, but God is still coming, if you're not paying attention, you just might miss mm. it, can sound, oh, like, you know, that's beautiful, but, like, what does that really mean? This yeah. is what that means. No. You're waiting for God to come in and do this thing or that, and you can miss these holy moments that yeah. are right in yeah. front of you yeah. if you just participate in them. And I think that's just – it's such a testament to the students and to the community here that, that they were able to do that. You know, And I, and I do feel like you, you have led the charge, that direction, because it's mm. – we don't often find – Christian pastors able to lead something this direction in an interfaith, um, which is something else you write in the book. Like, how did I land here doing yeah. interfaith work as a Pentecostal preacher? Mm. Um, it's not an easy thing to do. Well, it's really very, it's really so humbling to to get to experience because I just think like I'm aware that the things I'm seeing with real people real lives on the ground is not where everybody's living. But right. this is, and here's where else I'm going to say something, like, I feel like is outrageously harsh. In a time which I think harsh language is mostly not what's helpful, but the stuff that people are seeing and hearing is, is so, it's stupid. The stuff they're putting before us is stupid because the algorithm is stupid. The yeah. algorithm rewards stupid. The yep. algorithm promotes stupid. Everything is trying to play on your lower brain. The most, like, animal sort of like what that's just that's just the world yeah and i am and i'm aware that there's something about my vocation right now where i get to be immersed in this where that's not what's in front of me all the time mm -hmm. and I, I don't want to ever take that for granted and without wanting to be like mean or sound snide because i get i know that that's a unique privilege but it's also in a way it's not about a position it's like it's as simple as well i'm actually in community with people who's real lives are tangled up in these stories and the difference between being with real people whose lives are entangled in all this and having like some kind of a theological system or a political system that shapes all that for you just makes all the difference in the world yeah well and it's funny because i would come to you even you know a couple weeks ago and and this is also maybe like my newfound eightness I'm like, hey, you need to say this, and you need to do this, and he's, but he's walking through this in real life, in real time, with students from, you know, all these communities, and he's seeing this, you know, all all the nuance and the, the pain and the trauma and the trying to acknowledge this pain and also this pain at the same time and not, you know, negate anyone else, and it's very humbling. Um, because I think so many times when we are immersed in social media, and that's our world, we, we feel forced into making these statements, I guess, or seeing things in, you know, this or that, black and white, and we lose the, we lose the humanity, we lose like the nuance. And so it's been so helpful for me um, with all of my like, just say all the things and burn it all down mm. type rage. And some things need to burn down. They do. Yes, they do. But to also realize like there there are people and people are complex and you know the situation's complex um well you know if it's i can say this i mean like to me this is sister margaret too um in the way that she loved her palestinian people but i i, I think more broadly in general you just can't it's so unfortunate to me that people care about things more than the people right in front of them and i don't mean that in the way in terms of i know there's a a dark side of that, if you mean 
my four and no more, like my biological yeah. family, like whatever. But I think like it, there is something very grounding for me of like, there's nothing else that I'm talking about. There's no statements I'm going to be making. There's nothing about social media. Where nothing can matter to me more than my students. Nothing, nothing matters. My family matters more. But, you know, like in terms of there, there's a very immediate way that like no, nothing gets to matter more than that to me. Mm. So like getting getting my position out there, being a thought leader, I you know, there's probably a lot of ways I'm you, we may talk about. I don't know. For all the ways it may not be awesome that I have. Here's an agent for peace right here. She hears peace her dad getting worked up mm-hmm. and she gets very stressed. She gets she's very stressed when out when, voy- when his tone changes. Mm hmm. This is what happens. Mm-hmm. So this is Stella mm-hmm. nice. in her Christmas gear. Mm-hmm. Which that's about mom being here. I know. Because I don't. Dad's so, so I have to say like Dad's okay. He's just. <laughs> it's not. That's not bad. Just feeling a little passion. Yeah. <laughs> the um. Oh yeah, but there's just this very real way that uh, just the immediacy of that. Oh, for, if I've buried, seemed to have buried my head in the sand too much, or not been public enough, or out there enough, and that, that's. One of the things I feel like I've learned so much in this whole season of my life is I think it's good to be that consumed with the immediacy of a community where mm-hmm. tending to your real life is what matters the most. Yeah. And I don't – I'm not trying to think in sound bites or whatever. It's like, you know, that – and I think that – not that I think the book is great, but I do think it's whatever ambiguity or beauty, either one – is here or clumsiness i don't know it comes out of my real experiences in this way and not trying to there's nothing clever nothing than trying to like it's funny just getting to um the book trying to uh pull quotes and little like one-liners mm. out i'm like it it's becoming more difficult with your work because you're not thinking in terms like you said of sound bites mm. it's storytelling it's you know, like you're you're giving something that's deeper than than something that can be conveyed in a, a tweet or something that's going to go viral on social media, and I think that's beautiful. I mean, it's because you really are doing the work. You know, so well, it's not a very long book, so you can still read it relatively quickly. It's like but, what, eighty-five yeah. pages? No, but yeah, hundred something. Okay, but see, something you said is a good segue <laughs> into my next question because the, all of these tensions that you're navigating, and I mean, even just sitting in the the candle lighting service mm-hmm. with, and I don't want to tell too much about her story, but sweet Abby. Yeah. yeah. Um, talking about coming from a family with different faith traditions right. and things like that. So you have communities navigating impossible tensions that like no one else in the world is working yeah. out. No one is sorting out. I feel like it's such a, it's like a meta model for something that we're all walking into in Christmas and what, two weeks, mm. whatever it is. Yeah. Because one of the things I love about this book is it's personal. You know, Advent mm. is very much our own journey. Yeah. And it's very it's very much a personal thing. And I feel like you've got you know, like in, in Christianity there's kind of two camps. You know, there's like the one side that it's all like an individual gospel mm. and then the other side it's like all social and mm-hmm. it feels like we can't ever combine those things. Mm. Um but I love the way you do that in this book, that Advent like touches all those things. And so whether we're walking into difficult Christmas seasons and navigating tensions with family and broken relationships, there's a waiting and a longing that is so relevant to our lives. Like you, I mean, I love the way you talk about we're all waiting for something, the yeah. DMV, waiting for a check to come, waiting for 
a relationship to end or to mend or divorce to be finalized or a relationship to start or to find the one or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like we're always doing that. So consecrating that time. But I love how you talk about Advent as like something that is that personal to us and how we use that time intentionally. But it's also larger than us. Yeah. It's, it's a world we're longing for. We're longing to see. So I don't even know if I have a question that. I just, mm. I, I love that about the book that you, that you talk about both of those things. Because sometimes I feel like it's one or the other. You know what I mean? Like we're talking about being world changers. We're talking about justice issues. And then we can be so sick and unhealthy. And we're not talking yeah. about the ways we're trying to navigate our own relationships and our own lives and tensions with our families. Yeah. But I love that this season of Advent, we can step into that on every level. Well, and if I, the only riff I would have on that would be um, part of what I do in the book is write about some of these stories we get in the Gospels from inside them. And whether that's a chapter called Birth is a Savage Prayer that's um, kind of from Mary's perspective, I think we're meant to we're meant to read that story and to feel cold and the dirt floor and the alienation. You know, you we're we're, suppo we're supposed to conjure these things from the perspective of these characters, the joy, the unbridled joy of the shepherds. Like I think we're it has to be personal it has to be human in that way and yet there's very this there's also this very real way that advent slash christmas is such a cosmic story it's a cosmic story it's the christ story but it's everybody's story it's the story of one child but it's the story of the world it's um i think about revelation language and of, of the child being born and the and the dragon is there ready to it's it's all of that it's cosmic it is meta, and it's so very personal. Mm -hmm. And so I, I didn't overthink that, but I do just think in general that's how the Christian story is supposed to work. It's supposed to pull all of our levers in a profoundly personal way, and yet it also is always about connecting us to a story that's bigger than us, prouder than us, larger than us, older than us, more future than us. You know? Yeah. I feel like the whole language of being intentional about longing and waiting, mm. um, it hits me as so relevant because I feel like there's no time that I can remember in, I mean, we've been through a lot in the last, what, five to seven years in as a country in mm. the world. <laughs> um, my kids are just like, what? Why, why are we alive right now? Like, what mm. is happening? Is this normal? <laughs> like, no, yeah. we've been in an especially chaotic time. So there's a waiting and longing for the restoration of all things and reconciliation of all things that is so present right now on, on, a, on a large scale. And I don't feel like we can escape that ever. Mm -hmm. It's almost hard to, to have an individualistic anything right now yeah. because everything's so in front of us and we're so impacted and affected. But that same way that we wait and long for those things, is, it's really the same exact way we wait for reconciliation in our broken yeah. relationships yeah. and I find the whole language of just consecrating that time mm. and that time is sacrament that waiting and longing like so many of us are maybe estranged from family we have mm. broken relationships we have no idea what to do about um, if we could have done this if we could have done that broken bridges mm. and that that longing that and even that 
disorientation, hmm. a time where that's a holy thing, we can bring that before God. And the way we long for that on a large scale, you know, for, for things to be made right and for mountains to be brought low and valleys lifted yeah. high, like th- we, we long for those things in our own personal lives. And yeah. it's, I feel like we need more, more talk among like faith leaders and in our churches and spiritual spaces that like that longing is the same. We don't have to choose one or the other. We don't have to abandon yeah. the way we long for those things in our relationships to be all about justice for the world. Because I think sometimes, I know I've done this, I can completely abandon what's happening in my personal life and those mm. relationships because that's harder. It's harder work, honestly, to dig into those things than it is to stand up for whatever, whoever, whenever. Mm. And to be able to enter into both of those things fully, mm. I love that Advent calls us into that and that we can do both of those things at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean... That's the thing I'm really feeling right now. It's like that same waiting, that same longing. It affects it affects us on every level. We do, we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit groans in size with size too deep for words. Uh, Paul says, Romans 8, and I think that's, that's what Advent is about, is... It names those things that are unnameable. It speaks those things that we don't have words for. Yeah. It is. It is. It is space for that. Yeah. And I do love that Advent just sort of gives us permission for all of this very in between, ambiguous, like to just hear space for it. Yeah. And it's in the rhythm of the church calendar. You know, Margaret as a Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee woman, Advent was not in the water for her. She discovered these Advent practices while being in a boot and started lighting the the Advent candles every year. She wrote a little book about it, uh, Meditation of the Advent, I refer to that at some point. But like that thing about Margaret, like sort of in her context, because I say her in the book that I come from Pentecost people, not Advent people. It's not a slur on Pentecost. It's just, no, it's what we bring. We bring this, we bring spice and fire and all of that, but not so much Advent. And, but when I think about Margaret in that community and discovering the Advent story in that way, in her very Pentecostal way, spirit led way, which is always for me where the excitement is that it's at those intersections and at the intersections in general. So, um, that's what the first Zeitcast was all about. And, mm. um, yeah, I just I, I love that Advent gives us permission to wait and to long and not to skip prematurely to the resolution as yeah. if it's a twenty minute sitcom. Yeah. Well, I think so many times, especially from certain faith traditions, certainly word of faith traditions, there's something wrong with the waiting. Sure. Like you're doing something wrong. You know what I mean? Like, it's all about the resolution. Like, God intervenes. It's made right. Some, you know what I mean? Like, the miracle comes. And so we either bypass mm. or we, you know, um, almost think like we're doing something wrong, like that kind of in-between time. But the way that the world is not yet made right, like, there are relationships that are still in that waiting period. But to really be a Pentecostal preacher here... The command of Jesus, the directive of the disciples, is to go 
to Jerusalem and to wait, to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, to, to tarry for that. And I think the mistake is locating these things historically. I talk about at one point in the book how there is nothing more toxic in the world, and no version of this idea does not turn out catastrophic for everyone. There is no version of there being a glory days or good old days that doesn't, that's not violent. Mm-hmm. This is hard way. But I believe it. There's no version. If you, if your focus is on the past and getting back to it, somebody's going to get trampled by that vision. Mm. Somebody is going to be harmed. Yeah. Probably a whole lot of people are going to be harmed. They just aren't people you care about or have to think about. So, but I, so I think what the part of the power of things like Advent and Lent for me is that there's not this idea, well, now the Holy Spirit's come, so now we have the Holy Spirit. And, and it's, this is so weird. I don't talk about this in the book. I don't talk about this in terms of the Holy Spirit. But also, for me, this is all one thing. No, like, even for people who claim to have the Holy Spirit, yeah, you still need to go and wait again. You still need to go and tarry. And, yeah, Jesus is born, but also we're waiting for for Christ to come. I think in the sense of waiting for that incarnation and also for this summation of all things in which, finally, for this humble king, all will be all. So, yeah, but I just love that idea of, like, we're always called to reenact the story and to relive it. And it's so helpful for me now to have these rhythms that I did not have all of my life that impose that onto me when it's not necessarily what I would choose to think about or talk about. No, because you talk so much in the book about Advent being a a time where you're intentional, like the waiting is intentional. And that has to be almost a practice. Or or else the waiting means nothing. Mm. It's infuriating. Mm. It leads to cynicism, despair, giving up, Um, nothing's ever going to change, it's never going to get better. Mm. And so many people are in that place right now. Sure. And I feel like if the the message of Advent Advent is there is a reason, there is a purpose, there is hope Mm. in that waiting and longing. Mm. And like, and and, and stepping into that longing is like you said, like that's the the communion of of saints, you know, it's stepping into a thing that's bigger than you, it's Mm. a holy thing, it's a consecrated thing. I just feel like that reframing is everything. Um, and, you, and you talk a lot about, also in the book about witness and the power of witness. And I, and I love how you talk about Sister Margaret's book about what, what's the title? Small, small, small Enough. Yes, yeah, Small Little book she wrote in 2010 that nobody has read. I know. I, my, you know. I say there might be four of you that nobody's read this wonderful little book. Yeah. What she felt like she wrote under the same sort of trance-like profession. I heard her talk about it, you know, that she didn't even know it was ha- like the unconscious, that thing. It felt like, man, whatever things happened to her, I feel like it's happening to me somehow in this. Not aggrandizing myself with her, but the, there's something of maybe bearing witness to that same reality. Please. Well, just the, the small prophetic ways that we step into yeah. that flow. I just th- I just wanted to comment on, like, because you, you do talk, well, not just in this book, but yeah. even in the road, away from God, the road Away From God, you talk about the power of witness and I love the way you use it's doc, uh, Billy Kyle. Billy Kyle's, yeah. Billy Kyle's was the you you, you tell this better than I. He do. was a colleague of Dr. King's, and he was there when Martin Luther King was shot in Memphis, and he died within the last couple of years. Uh, but he, I was always so moved to hear him tell a story, and just got struck by this idea that he sort of becomes known as the guy who was there when Martin Luther King died, right? And that for the rest of his life, for however many years, forty. Of years, 
he just go, he's constantly retelling that story, rehearsing that story. He's consumed by it, like he didn't do other things that he was like he wasn't pastoring the church and still leading and learning. But he's the he's the guy who was there when Martin Luther King was shot, and I, um, there's something wonderful to me about embracing that kind of smallness. Yeah. Uh, which once like, yeah, again, well, of course, I'm still talking about Sister Margaret, and probably never won't be. Uh, you know, that was that was one of the things Chris said to me that was very moving is that maybe th- this these are the text this pressure that you feel is Margaret making you small the way that that she is now small, mm. you know. Yeah, I feel like even the terminology of like being a witness to something or just the small ways we can participate in what God is doing and the mm. way God is coming now for some of us that's just it's like very self-aggrandizing and all these things like those things seem menial you know it's like oh well what does this really do but that's that's the way we change the world yeah is 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 getting small um Small enough to stop the violence, small enough mm. to actually change the world. And, and I love that you've been in that um, season. For, for, all the, for all of the Jonathan Martin, which I'll get to that later, aura, mystique, presence, superstar, whatever. I, have, I feel like, I feel like who, you're... Who do I have mystique with? I'm not sure this is... Me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I will take that. I feel like the, the, mm. the work you're doing now is that, getting small mm. enough. And, it, and this book reflects that, you know, like the, the witness that you are to who Margaret was. Is, and you say that in the book, you know, like that's, that's what she was asking. Is anyone small enough? Will anyone get small Is there enough? such a one? She Is there such wrote. a one? Uh, yeah, you don't. It's a beautiful thing to be delivered from outcomes. Yeah. You're not in charge. It's not up to you how things are going to work out or how things are going to play. You bear yeah. witness, and which I think is the ultimate question to sort of, to the extent the question can be answered, but kind of the, what am I going to do? What does it even mean? Yeah, I don't know. What you, you have to bear witness. You, it's all you. What else can you do? Yeah, and I do think that there is this way that bearing faithful witness simply is and. God knows, you know, because you know where I, how I feel about these things. The last thing I mean with that is has anything to do with like moralism or any of this, any of that ridiculousness. Most moralistic people don't, are the least likely people to get this. There's really no work except to, to bear witness, to in an authentic way, to the truth, of the people around you, and the truth of your own story, mm-hmm. and I think that's what. I understand the Christian gospel to always be calling us into is that kind of witness that liberates us from having to determine or shape or know outcomes. And it's amazing the way so much of the way Christianity has been co-opted in the West and turned into something so other than what it was intended to be is is because people, one, they despise the idea of being small. Yeah. And, and, and you know, being present to what's right in front of them, mm. you know? And it's got to be like, we, we're going to do something that's going to 
control outcomes or, you know, it's going to be some mm. world changing thing. And it's like the refusal to get small mm. and to do the work that is right in front of them. Mm. This leads me to the next question, which I feel like is my biggest question. It's my favorite part of the book, my favorite chapter called On Surrender and Resistance. Mm. Because this is a tension that I walk all the time. When do you surrender? When do you resist? As an eight, I want to resist everything, <laughs> everyone, at all times. Indeed you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and especially when I combine that in like a faith context, mm. then it's like, oh, I'm self-righteously resisting mm. everything, <laughs> everyone at all times. But you talk about, like the, in, in one part of the book, you talk about Mary's yes and the Magi following the star and the... And that sort of surrender, the power and the beauty of, of saying yes to something that you might not entirely understand. Mm -hmm. um, and even some things we've been talking about before, just the beauty of surrender in those aspects. But then you also say something that I felt like was just, is so important in the context when talking about surrender. Because I've always, I've always heard surrender just talked about in one yeah. way. Not, and, and you talk about this like following the star, mm. which I think is beautiful. Like following the star can mean surrender, but it can also mean saying no yeah because sometimes you follow the star into places that hurt and yeah. they're abusive yeah and i know with me i even though i'm an eight and even though i want to resist everything i also want everything to be reconciled and everything and everyone to be okay and i mm -hmm. will i will bleed out for that to happen mm. and so it's difficult for yes, me to set <laughs> set boundaries and know when to say no um not this not now no more so how do you cultivate a kind of discernment, like when to say yes, when to say no, when to lean in, when to resist? And, and how do you do that in a way that doesn't just get swept up in the, you know, whatever black and white social media options are presented to you? It's <laughs> mm, a great question. I mean, there's nothing especially philosophical about this in some sort of in a big construct. I mean, I... I really like locating this in, I read the Bible, and I've read the Bible, and what I read in the Bible over and over again are people who say no, sometimes even to God. I'm not making that up. God's about to wipe out the people. Moses pleads, no, you can't do this. Don't do this. God's going to wipe out, the God character of the text is going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham pleads, but what if there were 50 righteous? What about, well, sure. What if there were 40? Yeah, okay. What, if, what about 30? What about 20? What about 10? Abraham stops. God doesn't relent. Abraham stops asking. But to, when I read those stories, and I talk about in the book a bit, I've been fascinated for so many years about Job, and Job's theology is thoroughly corrected when God talks in the end, thoroughly corrected. And yet... What Job says is that what God says in Job is that no one has spoken rightly of me as my servant Job has. And the the indication in the text is not really spoken of me, but spoken to me, has spoken right to me. That's what we see consistently in the text. And I talk about Rabbi Pfeffer giving a talk in one of our Shabbat services that kind of blew my mind hearing this from Rabbi that when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, that he should have said no. <laughs> this idea that, of course, God provided 
if you know that story, God provides the ram and all that. God was always going to provide. Abraham should have trusted that. He should have said no. And I do. And there's something so, and however provocative or not, I don't. I'm not even. I'm not even sitting with that. Those other stories, it's so clear where people do, and yet now you have so many people that have this eschatology, this belief about last things, where they anticipate that the story has to go a certain way, and certain people have to die, and the, the, you know, in order for these outcomes to to work out in the world. And I just know that Sister Margaret was the kind of person is the kind of person that if some divine plan involved the slaughter of her people, that she wouldn't say yes to that even if God was the one who was asking. I don't believe in that kind of script. I don't believe in those ideas about eschatology. That's a whole other podcast, I guess. It's a whole other conversation. One I've had a few times, I suppose. But even if I did, I still think the Christian response would be to say no to that. And... I quote, Chris has a lovely line, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right now, how it's in it's in um, the no of these saints, of these characters, mm-hmm. that we're able to hear the, the, the yes. yes that is Christ, that is yeah. Jesus. And I think that's, and that's the thing, you know, you, Revelation talks about how those who overcome in the end, they overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, loving not their own lives, even unto death. Jesus is a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The cross is a way. It's a way of living. It's a way of being in the world. It's a way of self-sacrifice. It's a way of submission, not domination, etc. We follow Jesus into self-sacrifice. We don't take anybody else's lives. We don't require anybody else's lives Mm -hmm. for our redemption. So if you're in some kind of cosmic story where you need other people to die so that Jesus can snatch you up out of the rubble, pretty sure that's not what God sounds like. I don't hear the sound in that. And I think there is a righteous way of saying no. That to not be convoluted about it, I, I do believe ultimately is what God wants. Moses, I think Moses responds exactly what God is looking for, what God has always look, been looking for. That's all there in the Jewish story over and over again. But for Christians, of course, this culminates in Jesus, who is the advocate that we have with God the Father, that, who, who lives to make intercession for us, all this wonderful language we get in the epistles. Yeah, this is what Christians do. They advocate, they intercede. Um, they don't demand someone else's sacrifice for their own redemption. That's evil. Yeah. And, if, and people aren't, not that people are evil or bad or their motive's wrong, but that theology is wicked and it's death-dealing and it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. I want to ask you more about the sound of God. That's my next question. But I, I just, I do want to read. I told him I wasn't going to read a bunch because I would mm. read the entire book during this podcast, honestly. <laughs> it's so many it's quotes nice. I wanted to read. But he says, um, this is on surrender and resistance. God is looking for the one who has the humility to surrender to the mystery, to follow wherever it leads, except for the times when God isn't, and is looking for the one who is willing to say, I won't follow any story to a place my deepest self knows it cannot and must not go. God honors the one who has the humility to say, let it be. And God also honors the one who will trust their own soul's deepest knowing enough to say on occasion, I am not willing to let this be as it is at all. Both can be declarations of trust, perhaps the latter more than the former. The tenacity of the wanderer is the same. I will know the face of God when I see it, Mm. and I will not stop until I do. I love that so much. Mm. But talking about the sound of God, 
I will, I will hear the voice of God, and I will not stop until I do. Talk about the sound of God, because this has been something so revolutionary for me, and we talk about it all the time. I feel like there's so many voices competing for our attention. There's so many voices claiming to speak for God, claiming to be prophetic, all the things. But you talk about a sound of God, and I love this so much more because I know you, and you have the sound of God. And we're married, so mm. I can say that, being married. And that's why I trust that so much. Mm. So talk, talk about the sound of God. What does it sound like? What does it not sound like? And you can absolutely go into the quote you know I'm going to bring up next. <laughs> well, people, people think the sound of God is all kinds of things. And I know people in my Pentecostal tradition who think that anger is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So whenever they're you know, preaching and like get into a state talking about anything that has to be the Holy Spirit, people have all kinds of ideas about what the sound of God is. But deep down, I really do believe this. People know. You know. And for some of you, you know better. That that, that sound, when the sound is condemning and blaming and scapegoating, when the sound is constrictive and violent, when the sound is not, when the sound is coercive, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, I, the, the, whatever the sound of God is, I'm convinced it's, it sounds like liberation, not like oppression and constriction. It sounds like freedom. It sounds like tenderness, mm -hmm. not harshness. And on some fundamental soul level, on a cellular level, people know that. And they recognize that sound when they hear it. And it's why people like Sister Margaret, though she's not famous and nobody like, but the, the, these certain saints throughout history that do get, people know that sound. And, they, and it's an otherworldly thing. And it's not, it's not either or thinking. And it's not, it's not black and white. It doesn't put people in categories. It, it transcends. It's bigger. I think people on some level know the sound when they hear it, or they should. I want them to. But people don't trust themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't. I think a lot of people have some idea of this, but they don't. They don't trust their own capacity to mm -hmm. to hear the sound, and and then so then they come to think of, of the sound of God as something that somebody else told them as the sound of God. Yeah. But I'm convinced if with enough time. If you sit with that and you sit with yourself, there's some things that you know that's just can't be who God is. And if it is, by the way, then we're then all of life is tragic, and there is no benevolence. There's only malevolence and chaos. If all of this story for most people ends in torment and punishment, then yeah. then there is no then there is no point in any of this. And I would cash out. But go ahead. Wow. I don't mean to preach. <laughs> Well, I love the way you talk about God is fury, mm. but not furious, yeah. as in the ways you're furious. Yeah, I'm furious. But I think God is because the as, fury that's not as furious. As tender as you are, mm. when you get mad, <laughs> you get mad. <laughs> so when he talks about God's fury is not like mine, you know, but, but it's not that um, following God means we never resist, that we never speak out that we never push back on things. And, and I love the way you talk about the judgment of God in Advent, in the context, context of Advent, is 
revealing the way things really are, which is a furious thing to happen, yeah. depending on where yeah. you are. Yeah. It's it, it it doesn't mean what we've been taught that it means that it's like punishment and yeah. but it's it's not less painful. Yeah. For things to be revealed as they are. I feel like so much of what's happening in the world right now is not something new, but a revealing of the way things are. And what we're going through is the pain of seeing the world as it is. It's unhelpful to tell people not to be angry. It's fine to ask them and important to ask them why they're angry, but it's unhelpful to tell people not to be. And, but at the same time, I really do believe, and I, you know, I, I know I say some of these things that they, they're sort of generalizations, but I think I can universalize here. If the God that you serve or the God that you worship gets angry the way that you get angry, then you need an upgrade. You need to trade up. You need to worship a different God. Because while I am not the fury, I do get furious. I, what I, I know that my anger doesn't produce righteousness. It doesn't produce results. It doesn't even things out. It might, that might be in it some, in the cocktail somewhere. I'm angry at inequality and justice, but ultimately it doesn't bring that. It doesn't bring mountains low, and it doesn't exalt valleys. It destroys. My fire destroys. Um, my fire, you know, it, it wants to. It wants to. It wants to hurt. If I feel hurt, then I want you to hurt. If you hurt somebody I love, then I want. I want you to hurt. It doesn't go anywhere, and there has to be a difference between God's fire and our fire. The Eastern Orthodox tradition gets this so much better than the West that the fire of God transmutes and transfigures. It does not destroy. And it's interesting how many of the prophetic texts that we look at in Advent, no matter what year of the church calendar, you know, there are always some texts like this. There's so much fire. There's fire to Advent. Paul talks about this real way that we all will pass through the fire. And the fire will reveal what's really in us. But there's just got to be a qualitative difference between the, the, our fire and God's fire. And I think the way that the world burns now, you know, in terms of hatred of our neighbor and turning people into other and like all of that just cannot be God's fire. So... But I also think we have to name the ways that we're furious and name our anger in order, you know, to, to get to that purifying fire. So it's mm -hmm. not about denying that, but hopefully letting it be swallowed up in something that's bigger into a fire that is constructive, into a fire that singes us all. That's part of my thing, you know. It's like I so, and you said that, but, you know, and you, I'm not contradicting because I know we think the same way about these things. It's kind of like, you know, I'd, I'm constantly seeing, I, any sort of self-righteousness that I feel is like, well, there's no such thing as self-righteousness. If I'm feeling righteous, it's probably not righteous to begin with. Like, I just, I, I, I think that what growth looks like is distrusting your own sense of self-righteousness pretty much all the time. And, um, which again, doesn't mean you can't let your fury lead you somewhere else or lead it better, but not trusting it, not trusting it ultimately. There's so many places, and I, I know we've got to wrap up. Mm. There's so many places we go with this. Like, the way that we hear the way people who claim to speak for God, and sometimes we associate that sound with the Holy Spirit because it's harsh in the ways that we are harsh. It's harsh in the way that uh, 
it others people it creates in and out groups it's 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 more like if we just call our friend and we want to like gossip and like spill all the things because that's the way our rage works Hmm. but we associate that sound with God because that's more of a reflection of us. But and we, we want to be told what to do. There's right. order yeah. in that. I mean, I, I grew up literally like, I'm like a masochist or something. Like, yes, yeah. just please like heap on the shame and judgment more from the pulpit because I associated that with yeah. the Holy Spirit. But am I ever going to welcome that kind of judgment in my life? Mm. Like, no, mm. because I don't believe that's good. Mm. Like, it makes me want to crawl under a rock and die. Um, or it makes me self-righteous and I want to heap that onto other people. But I love the way you talk about Advent being a season to welcome the judgment of God, which is purifying in, in ways that are for our good. And, and the thought of welcoming judgment is, is so foreign to me from mm. my tradition, but a, a beautiful concept because, of course, anything God is doing yeah. for His people is for their good, not out of, a, out of punishment, not to shame, not to condemn. So to welcome that into the world, to see the world as it is so that we can repair it, so that we can work to bring about yeah. the kingdom of God in the world as it is, but in our own lives, you know, we can welcome it the same way. We, it's not something we have to be scared of because it's not, it's not the sound that we've so often associated. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the yeah. turn or burn, the in and out, the, you know, you're, you're either whatever. Like, that's not, that's not, the, that's not the judgment. As a person who doesn't believe in a God who slow roasts people for eternity, and I don't believe that because the Bible doesn't teach it, Jesus doesn't teach it, the early church doesn't teach it, no one with no one should <laughs> should teach it. <laughs> but you know, and some people, if you know that, they're going, oh well, you don't you don't believe in the judgment of God. That's a trouble today. Is people don't well, I do believe the trouble days that people don't have judgment. It's just not that. That's just not what judgment is. The judgment of God is incredibly painful mm. and maybe experiences a kind of torment, especially if you're resisting it. Mm. But the judgment of God is always a thing to be welcomed. Well, the, that prophecy again in Isaiah, we always talk about this time of year, the, that the valleys will be made low and the, sorry, the valleys will be exalted and the mountains will be brought low. That's what God's judgment does, levels. And if we're on the mountain, that might not sound like good news, but ultimately it's kind of depends on where you're situated. But for me, there's just this idea that it's absolutely true that so much of what's wrong with the world is that we collectively and individually don't welcome the judgment of God. How do I know whether I'm a person who's welcoming the judgment of God? If you're welcoming the judgment of God, then the fire burns you. It doesn't burn mm. your neighbor. Mm. burns you. That's so good. And I just think like so many people, like it's just like the fire of burns everybody but them. Yeah. They're throwing everybody else into the fire. That's it's so easy. That's the thing is that people make it sound like it's hard and it's easy. It's it's incredibly easy. It's it's chi- it's childish not in a good way. It's the wrong kind of childlike. It's petty and it's punitive and it's small and it makes you petty and punitive and small. And it is a reflection of a God that's created in our own image. And I just anyway, I don't mean to go so hard because the point though really is to be constructive is that the judgment of God should, there is a very will with that fire, like, oh, it just, it singes, it burns, but again, it singes us. And if we really come to trust that that fire ultimately mm-hmm. transforms, it transforms yeah. us in the world into something good, this might hurt for a minute, 
but this God isn't coming to torment. This God isn't coming to torture. This is a God who's always coming to make things right. Then I think we can come to a place where we start to welcome that judgment and welcome that kind of judge, because that judge is Jesus, who doesn't judge like I judge. And once again, if, if he does, then we're in trouble. But I don't, I don't believe that's the story. I love the idea of even Mary's yes being like, mm. yes, yes to judgment. Yes, to things yeah. being revealed yeah. about ourselves and about the world. I mean, how transformative would that be for the entire world and all of us individually if we were to say yes to that kind of judgment, that kind of truth yeah. about ourselves and not be afraid of it? Yeah. Yeah. But if you, it sounds so, again, not, I'm not trying to turn that into another version of the toxic thing. But if you, if you think judgment is for everybody else mm. and everybody else deserves it, I don't know a different way of saying this because I don't feel like this is glib. I don't feel like this is generalization. That is the theology. That is the ideology that truly tramples the world. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the brokenness at the heart of everything is that it's somebody else's fault. Yeah. And while I don't think people should go around feeling guilty and self-loathing and self-flagellating, that's not what I mean. But like, there's a basic way. Christians, we confess every week. We confess our sins against God and against one another. Um, we confess the ways that we have not loved God and loved our neighbors. Well, that's not out of self-flagellation, but there is this basic understanding that I have something to do with the world as it's constructed, that the world is what I am making it into and that what we're making it into, and we all play a part in that. And if you can't acknowledge your own complicity in what's broken, you're not going to get out of the driveway ultimately. And it's why... I think that sound of self-righteousness is always so dangerous and always so intoxicating. I mean, because I, I am, I am, I am no less drawn to my own version of wanting to be right and everybody else to be wrong and good guys and bad guys, white hats, black hats, all that. But at least at this point, I hope I'm recognizing that that's not where the spirit is. And more and more, when I feel that way and when I'm drawn to that, knowing that that's temptation that's it's not that's not drawing me towards faithfulness that but faithlessness yeah you wrote something recently where you talked about all the things we try to make it and all the ways we try to blame but at the end of the day like we're trying to avoid responsibility yeah and i think people have associated responsibility with shame or like i'm carrying something that i didn't do you know like being complicit in the story of america's legacy of genocide yeah. means that I have to feel shame or that I have to whatever. And people don't realize, like, it's kind of like a tipping point. Like, mm. once you just step over that line that you think is so scary yeah, and you accept responsibility, it's liberating. Yeah, that's right. It's not oppressive. Yeah. And I, I feel like so many people are scared of it because they think it's something because they've been taught that, like, to assume responsibility means, like, all these things come with it. Mm. It's not. It doesn't work that way. I feel like everything that I step into intentionally, yeah. um, I feel like that's, that's where I'm the most liberated. Like, yeah. oh, okay, seeing things clearly, even the ugliest things about myself and the yeah. world and the things that I like, all my sacred cows, that's the thing I'm always asking God to like mm. show me, shine the light on that. Because yeah. I know every time that's happened, I'm better for it. It's never harmed me. Um, and you do this better than anybody I know. You take... You take such responsibility for yourself in that way, and you're so much better than I am at at, at acknowledging your role and place and things in a way that does not blame. Which is fascinating about our relationship because you 
say such glowing things about me in this regard, but I see day to day you're the one who internalizes that and lives that in ways that I cannot access. Isn't it interesting, though, that in my eight way of saying things very bluntly, because I am really trying to live out this way of like saying things clearly without shame attached. Yeah. It's hard to hear it that way, though, yeah. because we're so hardwired to hear anything with, oh, this means something's wrong with me. People would hear it as attack. Right. When it's not. When and it's you not. are relentless about telling the truth about yourself, more so than anybody I know. That's why I was finding anybody is side-eye with you. It's like, well, yeah, well, this is the most relentlessly truthful person with themselves of anybody I've ever known. So I find that, so, like, you know, it just... Just because I've experienced... I, I think I've gone through some things that are so painful to, like, find out about myself. Yeah. But then I was like, oh, I, I imagined the worst thing happening, but I was more liberated on yeah. the other side of that than if I had kept these things hidden or secret. You you agree with your adversary. You say Would you say yes to this? Would you say yes to things that you're so afraid... If that were true, what that what that would mean about me, what it would say about me, it, it's the door to everything. Yeah. And when you're not able to confess your sins mm. in the again non moralistic way, I don't I don't feel like going. Also, it has really been a long time, and thank you for being with us. I don't us. even know how long. Yeah, it's, been. it's uh, an hour and twenty minutes. Okay. The I don't mean to go real political, but this is like this is America. Is there's always this idea that. We're an ahistorical people, aren't rooted in any kind of larger story. And part of what is so maddening about the way people talk about things in the Middle East is with no sense whatsoever of how much our country creates these realities. Mm -hmm. It's not a hot take. It's how you end up funding missiles that are dropped on Palestinian people while also funding Palestinian aid, while also giving money to Iran, which is what we've always done in Central America. Um, it's not God who's rising up and casting down. We are doing that. And we are like a collective people who are just so unaware that that's how we operate. And it becomes in, in macrocosm, that, that's, that's the whole story of what's happening, I'm convinced, in our relationships, in our daily lives, like all the time, is that we are just completely oblivious to the ways that we are creating I don't mean in some weird new agey way. Whatever you prophesy, whatever you believe in this way, you 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 craft these narratives and then you need to fulfill them. You yep. the nature of prophecy is to self self fulfill. If I bet on the Celtics that I need the Celtics to win, it just this is how it works. Yeah. And you start to massage outcomes so that you can be right. Mm -hmm. And that's and and so we don't see how we do that so in this broader socio-political way we don't see how that's what we're doing in our daily lives that we're constantly you know so i just think that's which is why i we need not just humility but humiliations thomas merton i think talked about praying for humiliation every day i do not pray that prayer because as you know living with me i i experience so many humiliations on a like a, unintended a, on a daily basis <laughs> I, I have no i have no need to pray that prayer i've never gone a day without right that's right you know <laughs> having a couple dozen of those so <laughs> all right um okay i had a couple of the questions but i'm just going to skip to the last one should we all right should I ask the last one now because we're almost good boss i was trying to keep it to an hour okay okay so a little more personal which i will say before we get into this just about the book it really is amazing like please mm. pick it up if you don't have his last book, the road, away, the road Away from God, pick that one up too. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing. And Your endorsement was, does mean more to me than anyone else's. So, so that the fact that you feel I, that way I about feel these like things. I think some people like, could think like, 
oh, that's his wife, whatever. She's going to say whatever. You know that's not true. No, like, no, I'm, you're not. No, you would tell me. She, she would tell me. She does tell me. But if Nicole's with me, then I'll go. Then I'll. Yeah. I'll I'll go to war in a nonviolent way every time. <laughs> I need one. I need one person on my team. <laughs> All right. So for people who have followed your journey or have followed you for a while, where have you been the last few years? What have you been <laughs> up to? Why did you go from everybody's Twitter pastor to not being on social media much at all? Where, what have you been, what have you been up to? What's been going on the last few years? What I mean, I know. I, I, I'm just asking for the people. Oh, for the, for the, for the people. <laughs> how, how meta should I go with this? I don't know. I could just say it's all my fault. And that could be the would end. You, would you mind? Because that would absolve me of any sort no. of like, no, I, I'm just kidding. It's actually my fault. Um, I mean, I've been, I've been a lot of places doing a lot of things. I think it's... Um, I've, it's everything from our journey of love and as a person who's not a biological father. Can I just um, can I interrupt oh. just really quick? I did want to say this because I don't want to forget. Second half of life love is insanely amazing. It's where it's at. I just want to say for anyone who's mountain. disillusioned or whatever yeah. or feels like it can't happen for you or whatever, it's just just saying. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 is, it is where it is. It is it, and it, we it are is. nauseatingly like into each other. We have to play it down. Yeah. Almost because I feel like people would be like, just stop. No, but everybody, everybody would hate us. Yeah. 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 No, we're that into each other. I think it's like you, everybody, when they say yes to another person, is saying yes to all kinds of things they don't know they're saying yes to. And nobody can know what it fully means to make it. Of course. I didn't know what you were saying yes to. I definitely did not. <laughs> <laughs> I did not. Stella but, agrees. <laughs> she agrees. Stella agrees. Yeah. <laughs> See, bears witness. We, but yeah, th- I think like there's, but there is something different about living some life and saying yes to another person when there is something like more to the journey. Yeah. And uh, so I don't care. I don't know. I, I feel like now I'm, I'm, I love being with you and I'm so much more comfortable and, uh, it also makes me maybe feister. I mean, to be I, anybody would be like, you know, in terms of like, oh, like divorce people and like, well, like, like, you know, feel f- you can project all the unhappiness of your relationship onto us if you want to. There's something pretty awesome about saying yes to another person's past and history and all of its complications and doing it with your eyes wide open, knowing what you're doing. It's not a light thing. You know, and it's yeah, but it's also really joyful. So yeah, I think like what we built together with the kids. I think also we dealt we've dealt with plenty of our own kinds of trauma. Yeah. And for people who don't know, I have four children who he became an insta stepdad to. So that's a lot yeah. to go from Jonathan Martin, you know, living the high life bachelor life to. <laughs> Well, I was, Married with I, four kids. What high life was I living? I don't know anyone who thinks I was living the high That's life. That's true. Maybe not. But but maybe it would be. Like, it would be easy. It would be some people. You could romanticize it, I guess, because it was sort of like you do what you want to a point. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you were traveling around, seeing like you two fourteen times in a month. So that you can't do this. I've not now. been to Vegas yet to the Sphere. And I know. Yeah. Please send donations. Y'all, y'all <laughs> he's he's going to be sick. <laughs> anyway. The the I don't. I, well, no, it's just the, I do think so much of 
the last few years has been our story and our lives in a way that's been enough and that's been okay and it's been um and then you know since we've been married this whole very interesting journey of living in two places and it's yeah complicated and hard and awesome and i think uh, so that's had its own so yeah like I, i feel like in a lot of ways i haven't had the time the energy the bandwidth to know how to talk about it because i'm living it so intensely mm-hmm. and even though where sometimes it's been i've maybe felt like gone into my shell more than i would exactly have actively chosen to because it's kind of like all i knew how to do is like well right now i've got to focus on same thing i was talking about our DePaul students earlier like this is my people this is my tr-. like uh, like us being okay is is the important thing right now you were also protecting me i think mm. So, and a lot of people, maybe we'll talk about that at some point, but. Oh, we're teasing. We're teasing the but people. not for today. But you were also protecting me. Well, I don't, of course, think anything like noble about that. But I do think there is just this, that, that is a second half journey for me, is that the people around you really being okay is kind of, is, is, is the ball game. And so yeah. what else would it mean to be some writer or thought leader like whatever if you don't mm-hmm. like the, the the things that are most immediate i've just been what uh w- what's come to matter to me more what i love about that in terms of my own sound now is i feel like it's there's a lot of liberation mm-hmm. in that yeah. because i just don't I, after a conversation has been so beautiful i'm not gonna use profanity like whatever but i don't i don't give a you can plug in all of the expletives about much of anything in that way, because you're not, you can't humiliate me. No one can humiliate me, cancel me, hurt me. You can't. Like, this is sort of like the the people that I love the most being under any kind of threat and any of the kind of worst things. I feel like it's like, well, we, we jumped right into the heart of all of that darkness. There's just not anything to be afraid of anymore. Well, we, we went to hell and back. Yeah together we have been so i think that makes you a little bit unafraid and you're grounded when you have your people so whatever happens from there but it makes me so much more even reading your words not just because i don't just read them as your wife i read them still as you know your your fan and Mm. as an outsider and someone who learned so much from you i feel like everything all the sound coming out of you now has a depth that as, as impactful as you've ever been wasn't there the same way before. I don't think it was. And I feel like this thing you're stepping into now is just another level, and I, I trust it, and the mm. world needs it. I need it. Mm. And I hope that you don't ever let anything shut you down. Well, I need this, and and, and, I've, and I need you, and I think the world needs you. Not like patting you. It's like I really believe that. But I, I don't disagree that I don't think that depth was there before i i don't i don't mean that to sound like whatever i do think there's there's something so different though about like i don't i don't flinch because anybody makes me like it's not it's not in me to do you know i i i I fall apart all the time under the weight of my own self-loathing whatever else i don't i don't flinch and i do think there's a fierceness that comes out of that that is uh that kind of journey that is that is that is liberating, and uh, yeah, I, while I would don't wish the pain of that purifying fire on anybody, 
also think it's the only, it's the journey that that saves your lives, and it's why it makes sense to me in a whole different way. And it's why the it's ridiculous people act like you know Jesus says, you know, that talks about you know losing your life and laying down your life and all this. You have to you know lose your life to find it. And people then think, what can I sacrifice? What can I give up for Lent? What arbitrary thing can I Lent? And it's not like that. You very rarely choose your crosses. But, you know, we'll all have that. We'll all have – but I think when you say yes to it and you drink it all the way down, it transform you, transforms you. It's the only thing that transforms you. There's just nothing else that mm. can make you into something else. And as many things about that process or that humiliation that I would despise, I would never choose to, to go back and be any other mm. version of myself. There is never a second of wistfulness if I go back to this stage or this place or like whatever, because, you know, I mean, not that I don't have regrets. I have all kinds of regrets. And, you know, when you harm people, I think you're supposed to feel regret. I'm not really into that. Like this thing, like you can't ever say you have regret. Well, of course, yeah. things I regret. Of course, things I want to do differently, especially yeah. um, anyway, I could, you know, ever harmed anybody else. I hope you regret those things uh, that we, are, you know, reflect in a way that brings that place. But I wouldn't, but I wouldn't change any of it. Ultimately, because this is where the adventure is, and this is where the the thrill is, and the life is. Well, you can't despise the things that broke you open. Yeah, that's right. And I feel like the same way. I mean, I had a a therapist one time say, you know, and this was after my divorce and all sorts of things. You know, every everything happens for a reason. You you know, the, nothing was done wrong. All these things need to happen. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I understand that kind of thinking, but like, also people were hurt. Yeah. And yeah. that can't just be bypassed. Yeah. Like, I I need to sit with that and sort it in a way that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean that I continue to walk in shame. It doesn't mean that beautiful things can't come of it. Yeah. But I feel like we can be called into all those things. Like, we can do all those things at once. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be either or. And we can we can look at ourselves honestly and welcome that kind of judgment and that kind of honesty without falling into the shame trap and living from that place because yeah. I did for a while. I was like, okay, my penance is. Yeah. I need to assume this identity for a certain amount of time. Yeah. And some people will be really upset when you shed that identity. Yeah. When you walk through it and you're like, okay, all right, I'm kind of done. It's a new season mm-hmm. and I'm moving forward. And so it's complicated. But I feel like if we don't ever welcome that to begin with, if yeah. we don't look at ourselves honestly and deal with our stuff honestly, it's really hard to get to that point where you're living new life on the other side. And there's, there is beauty in that. I mean, I would say at this point, all the things we've walked through, we've walked through, like people were hurt and I have so many regrets, but we're here now and we're living this life now. I love that. And I love that you're shedding all of that kind of consciousness and that we're having this conversation now and the ones we'll have in the future. I just think it's kind of, we, the world does need that kind of, uh, that kind of fearlessness, which again, I just always feel like you're so relentless with yourself and your pursuit of truth and wholeness, and not settling for for less than that. You know, it's it's, it's something I so deeply admire. So, without wanting it to sound like just some sort of empty reciprocate, like you just you know that that I'm your fan ultimately always, and um, so I'm love I love again being able to use this to do a little judo to then just for you to be you and and even talk about some of this journey from your perspective because I think it's so it's so healing. And wherever you are, whoever we're with, I always see you bringing so much healing and freedom into into whatever space. And that's a thing I aspire to. So, 
Well, I feel like even this very personal wrap up here is also Advent. I feel like a lot of this mm. is, you know, this is the truthful telling of our story, which yeah. we will do more of because yeah. I think I think the world needs more of that, not in an oversharing type way, but yeah. just the real gritty stories of how God, you know, brings beauty from ashes. Yeah. Um because well and and, and we and I'm a preacher trying to lend the plane, but we do love is what makes us safe to do that. Love is what creates a context for that. And that's I I'm gonna not do my thing. I'm not gonna like say this when it's for shade. It's sincere for anybody for anybody in any context, any place, any relationship, in any family, in any structure, any system who's afraid of the truth telling that that's what always makes me sad is that you just knowing the full truth about each other mm-hmm. and you, being fully seen and fully known and fully loved in that way is the only freedom that is. And if you're yes. not able to do that, then wherever you are, you're not free yep. and you are sad and constricted. And, you know, I just, the thing that people fear the most, well, what if we had the conversation? Well, actually it's the only thing that could, that could ever liberate us. It's how God works. It's yeah. the sound of the spirit. That's that truth that sets us free. And people worry about, and we should be, because there's a lot of people who struggle with this, staying humble, especially in you know Christian spiritual spaces and leadership spaces and all that. Humility is something we're lacking. Yeah. But I think that if you if there's radical truth telling and ability to listen to any sort of feedback, any sort of critique, any sort of revealing about a situation, about yourself, about your story. If you're if if you've done that to yourself already, if you've walked yeah. through that, it's the most liberating. You're not scared of it anymore. No. You have to live humbly because you're open to that sort of feedback about yourself, and it's a beautiful place to live. I mean, it's it's hard. You kind of have to constantly go back to that space of like, okay, I'm not going to defend. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to welcome it. I'm going to, I'm going to hear it. I'm going to yeah. hear someone else's. <laughs> Perspective. I'm going to see things true. I mean, we deal with this all the time in our relationship. Hmm. Um, which which thing? Truth telling. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> mm. I love truth telling. You love. Sometimes the he's like maybe a little bit less truth telling. <laughs> you love the truth telling, but even now, like the the gorgeous way you're saying these things in a way that are it's it's it, I, it, you know it's always life giving. We can always get better at the way that we say things. Yeah, that's my learning right now. But I, I feel like it's just a radically different way to live. Just, and you said in the book, like hands and heart wide open. And some of that is just being willing to hear the truth of the way things are. Yeah. And, it, and, and it's, it's liberating. Yeah. It really is. Humility is a tricky word because the moment anybody thinks they're humble, right, then you're not. But I still, at the end of the day, I think if, you're, if we're not humble, it's simply because we're not telling the truth about ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're just not. and But if you are, and telling the whole truth, rehearsing the whole truth, which, which I think is what's so wonderful about our relationship, is that there is the truth-telling in the context of a whole lot of being seen and known and, and safe, and that's where things grow, and that's where we grow. And Well, I would hope for anybody and everybody else yeah. this Advent. Me too.
If you can get to a place where there's nothing to hide or defend and everything's just... Nothing to hide or defend. Nothing to hide or defend. It's it's the most beautiful way to live. Great quote in Marilyn Robinson's uh, Gilead, you know, that nothing nothing true about God can be said from a posture of defense. Mm. How that would, like, rock the church world if we could just <laughs> get that. And rock everybody's world. Everybody's world. You, I, I, I'm a little. I might be now. I don't know if you're rubbing off me or what. I might be getting a little too free in this way because I just don't. There's. It's just hard to. There's just not a lot to be intimidated by when you have faced judgment. Mm-hmm. I think when you have that kind of radical honesty, yeah. it's all it is. Just radical honesty. It's radical honesty. That's to me. That's so much of what being a Christian is. It's just. It's walking in. In truth, in this way, yeah. and when you and when you do that, not when you're a holy person because you do holy things. When you walk in truth in that way, it uh, it opens everything up, especially you. But it also opens up the people around you. And uh, as I always see with with you, people are or who are hurting or broken anyway are drawn to you like moth to flame because they're um, they're going to receive that kind of humble wisdom and that kind of honesty and you know and that just it just sets people free well the thing that's so inspiring about the true saints is that they walk in that fierceness yeah but also the humility yeah that's that's i think why we emulate them yeah that's my models those i don't have any role models except for those people who walk in both of those things and i said that in the preface about margaret having the fierceness yeah and the tenderness yeah that is that Unique cocktail of the saints. Yeah. They're equally fierce and equally tender. And if all you have, you'd if you have fierce with ego, no. With ego, no. And I, I deal with this all the time. So it's constantly the thing. I'm like, okay, I can be fierce, but if I'm self righteous and yeah. egotistical, it's going to be bad. It's not going to go over well. And mm. he, and he'll tell me. <laughs> but if and we, that's everybody's journey. But yeah, yeah, like you know, I think it is. It's like that sort of that tough and tender. It's the. There is something in the saints that, that that is there. This kind of like you, you you would want them to be there in every moment of your life. You know they'd love you at your absolute worst, and you kind of don't want to cross them either. Like with was, was Sister Margaret to me, because it was like there's that's that energy of that fearlessness that comes from. And she, but she was a deeply humble presence, yeah. And uh, like and, and brought a humility into every room that would just you know break you open. But does it break you down? It breaks you. Yeah. It breaks you open. It's the sound. And I would want to be that. It's the sound of God. It's the sound of God. That's what it is. It is the Son of God. Yeah. So why don't you, so, so, so uh, do you want to say goodbye? Do you want to wrap? It's our 50 I minutes should, in this I conversation. I know. I should yeah. have a wrap. We were going to maybe do two parts, but I don't know. I think it it's really one long. big part and let it be what it is. Well, um, this was our first sit down as a couple ever. So this was like a big hurdle because he's wanted to do this for a long time. And I'm like, nobody wants to see you and your wife have a conversation. I feel like that's a very like evangelical world thing to do, like the husband and wife talks. So I've been like very averse to it. But, but the devil really doesn't like it when, we get, <laughs> when me and you get together. Apparently not. So I guess now we're going to have to do it again and talk about lots more things, which we do have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to talk about. Like if we did this, it could be scary how many things we could talk about. Actually scary. So maybe stay tuned for that. But this was very fun. This was awesome. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for doing it. And I love being able to ask you my questions because it's funny. Like, I still see you as kind of my guru. Oh, but when we are living with Jesus. someone, it's like you don't want to ask your, like, big <laughs> questions. Like, you know, you mm. just want to turn on your Netflix show and chill out. Mm. 
Well, now I get to now I have a forum. I can ask you all the things. Well, you know that I, well, so but I feel like our thing, which is hilarious, is that I you, I never know how to tie my shoes or what do, and I'm constantly asking you what 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 to do, what do you, what do you true. think, and like all that. That's so true. really, I, you probably aren't if you're not asking questions, it's because I'm sucking up all the oxygen with talking <laughs> in general and. I know I love this because I, uh, I get to just say what I want and yeah. talk as much as I want. Is it absolutely. So. It, it, you, re- you really do. So Stella knows we're wrapping up because she just knows. jumped up. So yeah, She's like, yeah. I think she, she knows it's time. Yep, but Stella like, is un- time to feed me. uniquely in synchronicity with the spirit in that way. All right. Well. Thanks for joining us for the Zeitcast. Thank you, Nicole. I love you. I love you. We'll do this again real soon. Yep. Y'all take care. <laughs>